I have been muted this whole time. Okay. We're going to start over again. <laughs> okay. So welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast. We talk about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on who you are and how you roll. Um, I'm so excited to have TJ on today. TJ, I met you not that long ago at a conference. I'd heard a lot about you. You're pretty well known in the recovery world, very well known, actually. You've written a lot of books. Um, I want to learn more about you today. Um, you Welcome to the corner, first and foremost. Well, thank you so much, Peggy. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And I there's nothing I love more than being in conversation about recovery and how we live our most uh, heart-centered and connected life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So usually the way that we, we kind of go into this podcast is we talk about your past, who you are, as an individual, where you were born, where you were raised, um, what had happened during, you know, certain portions of your life. And then we get into the recovery part, but also then afterwards, we want to talk about what you do now. So who are you? Who's TJ? Wow, there's a big question. How many hours do we have? I, you know, <laughs> when, when, as you were inviting those few questions, I was reflecting on Growing up, um, being a product of 1960s, do I dare say, born in 1965 and living in a small town in Indiana. And for whatever reason, I've been reflecting on that a lot in the last few weeks, uh, being this effervescent, happy, joy-filled boy in a world that wasn't necessarily going to be celebrating my effervescent self. And I remember pretty early in my life, um, losing my sense of connection and joy. Uh, so it's a it's a big part of my story. And obviously, you know, the family system I grew up in and ultimately or essentially, I, I remember being a very, very happy and joy filled child. And I also remember the day that experience diminished. So tell me about that. Tell me more about that, the, the whole upbringing and everything. Well, you know, I, I, when I first got into recovery, I remember saying I had the perfect idyllic childhood. I had the perfect mm -hmm. parents. They did the best they could. And then about a year into it, I had the most horrible parents ever, and they were abusive to me. And then about two years in, I thought, well, you know, actually, they did do the best they could. And I'm reflecting on my parents got married when they were 19 years old, I believe, 19 and 20, and started having kids right away. And I can't even imagine. So I say all of this, not with judgment, but with a lot of compassion for my parents and the skills that they had or didn't have and the trauma that they endured. 
But I grew up in a household where what people were saying, what people were doing, and the energy I felt were three totally different things. And um, a mother, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was a school teacher, and everything looked really good on the outside, the four-bedroom house, the two cars, et cetera. But there was a lot happening behind the scenes that wasn't being talked about. So really early in my life, I realized shame and I realized secrecy and we don't talk about that. And no one was talking about my dad being really busy with people who weren't my mother, let's put it that way. And my mm -hmm. mom um, with a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues, vacillating between depression and rage. So I grew mm -hmm. up in this um, family system where none of that was being talked about and everyone was pretending like everything was okay. Hmm. Okay. So did you have any siblings or anything like that? Yeah, I have an older sister and a younger sister, and we are actually really close. And I think part of that was we really bonded with each other because it didn't really feel, always feel really safe, um, you know, growing up in our house. And, and again, I want to be, I want to reiterate, I'm not talking about this from a place of blame, but a, from a place of, having some compassion for myself of doing the best I could. And when I was seven years old, I built a wall around my heart and it was the, the most brilliant thing I could have done at that time. And I really closed off, of course, until I discovered weed and alcohol, which opened me right back up, but I'm sure. Ah. <laughs> and, and how old were you when you discovered weed and alcohol? Somewhere around 13 or 14. It's a little fuzzy if you can imagine, but somewhere around that age. And where were you when you discovered it? You know, it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I I actually started, of course, with friends, right? Mm -hmm. Someone um, offered me weed and I did it. And um, I will say that the first time I drank alcohol, I felt the most alive and comfortable that I had felt. We hear this over and over again, right? But right. I want to reflect it back to, I felt like I did when I was a, a really little kid, you know, what I call a pre-programmed human before mm -hmm. I taught about, you know, um, us and them and good and bad and all the things that have created this separation from myself. So that's a long way of saying 14. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and so it, it made you feel good, obviously, because you kept doing it. Is that what happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it, what, it's interesting. I don't know if it made me feel good. Is it actually made me feel less? Um, it made me feel, I guess, some relief from this kind of existential crisis I was in. You know, I had, by the time I was seven, when I built that wall around my heart, what came with that was some core false beliefs about myself and the world. I'm not mm -hmm. good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not smart enough. The world isn't safe. So alcohol and weed didn't necessarily make me feel good. But what it did is it diminished all of that or it numbed out those feelings of unworthiness. So mm -hmm. in a way, I guess it made me feel good. <laughs> okay. And did it carry on into becoming a full-blown addiction? Did other things come along with it in your adolescence? I mean, I would say it was pretty much an addiction from day one uh, because mm -hmm. I wanted more and I wanted more now and I wanted that feeling to go on forever. Okay. Uh, and I know now that that was really um, what we might call a low-level search for love and connection. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it was it saved my life, to tell you the truth. I mean, without drugs and alcohol, I don't know what would have happened to me. 
And can you explain more when you say it saved your life? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, through early childhood experiences that I now identify as traumatic experiences, I would have mm -hmm. never told you that in early sobriety. Like I said, right. um, I separated from my true nature. I developed a lot of shame about myself. I believed I was broken. I believed the world was broken. And mm -hmm. so alcohol brought relief from that for sure. And of course, mm -hmm. I chased that. I wanted more of that. I wanted that feeling of being comfortable in my skin or, you know, this, I, that my shoulders, is, oh, you know, that yeah. sensation of being able to relax. Mm -hmm. I understand. I, I totally relate to that. Okay. So, so then you did it carry, did you become, did you start doing other stuff too? Besides weed and alcohol, any cocaine, anything like that? Yeah. So it, it's interesting almost exactly one year from the date I got sober. So going back mm -hmm. a year, I discovered ecstasy. And this is, you know, this will, this will date myself, but this is before <laughs> ecstasy was even a thing because mm -hmm. I was actually, I went to this nightclub that was literally the birthplace of the recreational use of ecstasy. There was a, a therapist who was using it in his practice and he brought it to this nightclub in Dallas and it wasn't even illegal yet. And we, and I started using that and that year was extremely painful at some points because it was literally the best moment I had ever had the first time I did it. And of course, as we know, then I started chasing that. And that year was overdosing. That year was not sleeping for every, any on Thursday or Friday night or Saturday night for a whole year. It was almost losing my job. It was a lot of pain. Uh, and it became what the, the day I got sober, it became the catalyst for me wanting a different way of living. Not so much what was happening on the outside, but really feeling completely bankrupt inside and just trying to cling to anyone or anything to try to bring relief from this sense of disconnection. Was this the late 80s? This was the mid 80s. Mid 80s. Yeah. So I got sober in June of 86. So this was, you know, I mean, again, you know, this is kind of before ecstasy hit the, the West Coast. I was living in Dallas, which was literally the birthplace of it. That's a whole story that we could save for another time or talk about now, whatever you want. I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit because I know I, I am 50 years old now. And I remember when um, we lived in Orange County back in my, I was think I think my senior year, we were catching wind of these nightclubs that were in Los Angeles that we would drive up like as a, as a collective crew of people that were, we wanted to go dance. We wanted to go sweat. We wanted to go be amongst each other and, and ecstasy had hit the scene. I mean, at least at that time, I think it obviously it started in Dallas, as you say, and then moved its way over this way. But um, it was fun. It was really fun, except for there were those. I mean, if you went hard like all night long on a Friday and into Saturday and into Sunday, usually like Monday was my come down day and Tuesday was my suicidal ideation day. Like I, wow. I, I can't stand this. And but we did this for a long time for many many years. So you yeah. got sober uh, right after this period. Or was it short lived? Yeah. So it was exactly one year. And the reason I know that is my roommate at the time. It was his birthday. It was a week after his birthday, so it was roughly June 7th or June 8th of 1985 that I started using in that way. And the same story that you just told, I, you know, every Thursday night, Friday night and Saturday night, not sleeping, calling in sick to work, mm -hmm. um, feeling suicidal pretty much every Monday evening. And, you know, then trying my best to, like, get 
it, best I could sew it all back up. And this, this week was going to be different. And then by Thursday night, I was right back at it. So mm-hmm. I did get sober in uh, June of 86, uh, pretty much one year to the day I started using um, ecstasy and other drugs. So you've been sober a long time. It's been a while. Yeah. It's a, a, over 35 years. I'm oh kind of, I mean, you know, the, I'm gr- extremely grateful. Let's put it. I that love way. that. I was yeah. just saying, you look so young, like you would never think, you know what I mean? Whatever. Usually well, that's, when I see- that's the only reason I don't like acknowledging I'm 35 years sober because I got sober when I was 20. So you have to add 35 plus 20 and now I add another one. So yeah, I recently turned 56 and I'm very, very grateful that most of my life now I've been sober and that's kind of incredible. You look wonderful. Awesome. So, okay. So what, so what was it when you said, I'm going to get sober, like, did you go to treatment? Did you do it on your own? Did you just dry out in your own house or how did you do it? So a friend of mine had gotten sober and he was someone that was right alongside me at this club. And mm-hmm. we were like, there was this posse of people that we really kind of celebrated the tragic aspect of life. Let's just put it that way. And he had gotten sober and I saw something change in him. And, you know, this was an era where people were going to treatment in like this club I went to and they were like, oh, I'm going to go to treatment. And then 31 days later, we'd see them back at it pretty much. Right. I did not go to treatment. I got sober in 12 step meetings in Dallas and they saved my life. And um, it was my friend David who had gotten sober that invited me to go to a meeting. And I was yeah. so delusional. I thought he was asking me on a date, but that's a whole other thing. He definitely was not. He is definitely was not asking me on a date, but whatever it took. Right. And it got me there. And and that's that was the beginning of my recovery journey. And you just made this decision like I'm going forward. I'm going to stay sober and I don't want to I don't want to get high on anything anymore. Well, you know, I. <sighs> I had reached a place where I felt so, it was so dark. Mm-hmm. The externals were somewhat okay. You know, I hadn't lost my apartment. I hadn't lost my job, which was a miracle, by the way. But mm-hmm. the internal of feeling so bankrupt and so empty, so much shame, mm-hmm. that when I walked into a room full of people where I felt something, because that to me is the important part of this. It wasn't so much that I made the decision I wanted to get sober. It was I entered this room full of people and this energy I felt that was so loving. And I just wanted more of that. Hmm. Okay, good. I mean, it's so so nice to hear that you got sober at such a young age and you decided to stay sober because we see a lot of people that come and go, especially in their young adulthood, and they will attempt to get sober for whatever reason. Sometimes there's a crisis. Sometimes it's the family. Sometimes um, they're just sick and tired of living the way they want. And then they stay sober a few years in their young adulthood. But then after a while, they might start contemplating or thinking, maybe I'm not an addict. Maybe, maybe I, you know, maybe I took this a little bit too far, but I could actually maybe drink like a woman or like a gentleman or however that may be. But to see you put all this time together and take it so seriously and, and to know now to know who you are. Like, so how, how was it like throughout your uh, young adulthood, staying sober, what did you start doing with yourself in your life? Well, this is, I think, the maybe the most important part of my story. Um, at around 18 months sober, I found myself suicidal. And again, it's a little fuzzy, somewhere between a year and, and 18 months. I remember hitting that year mark and I did have that, oh, is this all there is? Like, oh, I thought something magic was going to happen. And I there was a paradigm, an established paradigm at that time and in that place that was um, something, it went something like this. Your life is a miracle. 
Don't worry about anything but not drinking. If you don't drink today, you are a miracle. Go help someone else. And I was doing that mm-hmm. and it worked until it didn't. And I kept, I was asking myself, why do I want to kill myself? Mm-hmm. And I met a woman named Mary Helen who changed my life because she gave me permission to start healing the underlying root causes of my addiction. So my first year to 18 months, it was about the joy of not drinking, um, having community, being able to be of service to people. But there was a place that I reached where I hadn't addressed any of the underlying trauma. And like I said, I found myself suicidal and she changed my life. She introduced me to Eastern uh, spirituality and so many different things in my world started changing then. And I discovered through her what really now is my life's work. And that is that there's a place, there was a place within me as there is within everyone that is whole and perfect, that I wasn't damaged. I wasn't broken. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is controversial, but I wasn't fundamentally different than anyone else on planet earth. (laughs) My solution was external and I became addicted to that external. And so recovery then became about unlearning and returning to my true nature. And so you believe that when people label themselves as being broken, they're truly not broken. Correct. Correct. Good enough. And, and I heard I heard you say that when, when you were speaking that day and I was like that I was drawn in because I've I've learned that a lot of us, a lot of humanity conditions themselves in a certain way because they, they think that they hear it from other people or because maybe somebody mentions it. And especially in 12-step meetings, you hear a lot of people say, I came in, I was broken, I was damaged, I was a shell of a human being. And so they believe that and that, that becomes their narrative. Could you expand on that some more? Yeah. And so I'm going to say it this way. Maybe it is important in the beginning to look at all of that. And maybe it is important in the beginning to say, whoa, some things in my life aren't working. Mm-hmm. But there's a fundamental difference between that and this idea that I'm fundamentally damaged or broken. Mm-hmm. And we see it in recovery circles and support groups, but we also see it in therapy, therapeutic models. We see it in treatment programs. It's pervasive, this idea that there's something wrong, that we somehow are broken mm-hmm. and that we need to figure out a way to be whole again. And so I'm inviting it as a question. What if the opposite of that is actually a greater reality? What if you came into the world as a whole and perfect what I would say is a spiritual being. Sure. And then through a series of events, we separated from that. And that is really the foundation of what created the addiction. The addiction wasn't the problem, it was the solution. We hear that mm-hmm. a lot. Yes. So what's the underlying issue and how do we return to our wholeness has become my my question in my life's work. Okay. So during the at 18 months when you had the suicidal thoughts and, and ideation. Was this the unresolved trauma that Mary Helen helped you actually take a look deeper at? Or what is that? Are you convinced of that? Okay, good. Um, So then can you talk about how you work through that? Yeah, it was it was twofold for me. One, and, and the reason I say it's twofold is I think a lot of times when we when we address trauma, when we talk about trauma, mm-hmm. when we look at trauma in general, many people have spent lifetimes or years or months mm-hmm. running from this experience of addressing the trauma. And in other words, um, the traumatic event is still locked in our body. 
And we are doing everything we possibly can to not feel that. Mm -hmm. So a big part of the trauma work for me and what has become the foundation of conscious recovery, which is my method, mm -hmm. is this wholeness and perfection. Because without that, I think addressing the trauma can be really difficult. In other words, if I believe I'm broken because of the trauma and mm -hmm. then I try to actually go in and address the trauma, that can be really what we say destabilizing, right? Sure. Or really difficult. But when I make a deep connection with my true nature, then from this place of I'm not broken, this happened to me, but it's not who I am, mm -hmm. it, it becomes much easier. So that journey of um, not necessarily going back and re-experiencing every traumatic event, but mm -hmm. looking at what were the core false beliefs I developed? What were the core decisions? I remember Mary Helen would say to me when I would be doing work with her, do you know what you decided about yourself at that moment? Mm -hmm. She kept asking that question. And I came to, oh, I decided I was broken. Oh, I decided the world was not safe. I decided men were not safe. I decided that I was somehow inferior. And those core decisions mm -hmm. became my point of view. It became my frequency. And without healing that, there's nothing in the outer realm that is going to actually change this until I get in and heal it. Wow. Powerful. Love it. So um, were you ever diagnosed by anybody for any kind of mental disorder? Did they attach anything to your... You know, I could probably get a lot of diagnoses, as many of us could, but I never actually got any official diagnoses right. because I wasn't going to a therapist during those early early years. I was seeing Mary Helen. Then I became a student of new thought. I'm sure we'll talk about that. I started yes, we will. Yes, I started attending Unity at that time. And so mm -hmm. all of this together and then went on this, this spiritual quest to Thailand and India. So there were a lot of different ways I was looking at myself, not through the traditional psychological lens, or I'm mm -hmm. sure I would have gotten lots of diagnoses. Let's put it Sure. Way. I think I would have too. I, I went to the treatment center that I went to. I wasn't diagnosed with anything, but I, I, over the years from seeing and working with so many different people in the treatment setting, I probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I would have as well. Perhaps maybe a little bit of bipolar. I don't know, but I know that I, I'm not that way anymore where I'm so hot and cold. But um, okay, so you went on these journeys. You started to expand your horizons uh, outside of the traditional psychological approach. Tell us about that. That sounds so awesome. Well, I started attending Unity and through my work with... What is Unity for those that don't know? For, Unity is a spiritual community that was founded in the late 1800s that's part of what we call the New Thought Movement. Mm -hmm. And it was a profound idea at the time. The founders, along with other people in sort of the existentialist movement, and a lot of amazing um, new thought was happening at that time. And the mm -hmm. idea is that thoughts create reality, and that mm -hmm. when we change our thinking, we can change our experience of life, and that the, the thoughts that we hold actually affect our physicality and affect our relationships and everything else. Now, I think uh, we've expanded upon that since the late 1800s, but at the time, that was the foundation. Uh, and for me, that was groundbreaking because I wasn't aware of the internal dialogue. I wasn't aware of the core false beliefs I was carrying. So beginning to address this and try to change my thinking mm -hmm. um, had a profound effect. And I'd like to talk more about that because later I had much different awarenesses around it, but that's what I was experiencing in the late eighties, early nineties. 
And when you joined Unity, were they out of Dallas? Were they out of California? Where was this? Yeah, it was in Dallas. Yeah, I, I started Unity in Dallas. I moved to San Francisco in 1991, and I lived there for 30 years. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I, I, you know, went back to uh, a Unity there as well for decades. So feel free to talk about that. You, you want to please expand. Uh, this is very interesting. Like I love this type of talk. Yeah, so there there are a few things that that started happening in my life. One, um, through my twenties, um, this idea of using affirmations and um, this idea of changing my thinking to change my life was really profound for me. And I did a lot of healing work that was based in the mind. Let's put it that way. I learned how to change my narrative. I, I discovered visualization. I discovered that I had this inner dialogue of my own brokenness and it was creating what I called reality. I kept choosing relationships to confirm the core false belief. Mm -hmm. What happened in my life though, was when somewhere around the time I turned 30, the trajectory of my life shifted mm -hmm. and it it became more outer focused. Honestly, I opened a business. I became really interested in success. I started using uh, spiritual principles to manifest my best life. And, you know, I manifested the, the house on the hill in San Francisco and, and the, the uh, hot boyfriend and the great Lexus and all the things I thought were going to bring me happiness. Uh -huh. And here's what happened. Uh oh. Um, yeah, uh, you you know what's coming, right? <laughs> yes. Somewhere along the line, um, I had the calling to become a spiritual teacher, and I had opened a, a successful business. Well, let me be a deeper level of honest. I had opened a business that looked really successful, but I was deep, deep, deeply in debt and unwilling to acknowledge that because if I was a good uh, metaphysician, I would manifest, right? And so I kept. Um, I had basically I had look goodism again. Uh, I was back to thinking if I looked a certain way, I would be okay. And what happened for me is I had this calling at the time it was to go into ministry at Unity. Mm -hmm. And once I decided or once I put voice to that, my entire world fell apart. Mm -hmm. um, bankruptcy, uh, my partner left, I lost the house, I lost the car. And all of this happened because I had this calling to become a spiritual teacher. And I had the opportunity at that point to go much deeper into uh, spiritual principles beyond the mind. Wow. So the ministry began at that point after you pretty much lost everything? Correct. I lost everything. And the ministry I, was, was part of Agape? Is that what you're talking about? or was that? It wasn't, it wasn't Agape yet. So my education was through Unity. Went to Unity Institute. I did five years of schooling with Unity. Mm -hmm. Simultaneous to that, I started working in the addiction treatment field. And I started okay. becoming really curious how to bring these spiritual principles into the addiction treatment space. What were, you doing, what were you doing in addiction treatment? Were you a... Uh, Counselor, drug and alcohol counselor. Is that what you? Yeah, I was a counselor. And ultimately, what happened is uh, I, I, because of my education and because of the pathway uh, toward ministry, I started doing spiritual care at, at a few different treatment programs and ultimately developed spiritual care programs, which eventually became conscious recovery. Uh, and this was in, in San Francisco or Los Angeles? All in San Francisco. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So th these were new manifestations. 
all new manifestations, but from a much deeper place because mm -hmm. I discovered through a very, very much a dark night of the soul that it wasn't really about changing our thinking and changing our life. It was really about healing the core vibration of my brokenness. Mm. And, that, and that involves some, you know, pretty deep work um, around the time I turned 40. Mm -hmm. And as I entered this field, and as I entered and continued in my education as a spiritual counselor and, and through spiritual leadership, mm -hmm. and I discovered that the deepening of the work I started in my 20s is what was being required of me in order to step into one spiritual leadership. But even more than that, I think a deeper um, awareness or a deeper level of my own recovery. Wow. Okay. So, and I don't want to jump ahead because I know right now you have consciousness. It's called, go ahead and say the name of your organization. Conscious Recovery. In Conscious Recovery, is it a treatment center? Is it a movement? What is it? It's a movement and a modality. So it is, it started as a book. Um, well, that's mm -hmm. not exactly true. I, I was facilitating groups in treatment and I was getting mm -hmm. these profound results with people experiencing their true nature, uh, mm -hmm. not as a teaching, but as an experience. Sure. So when I wrote when I wrote the book, Conscious Recovery, it started as a book and then a workbook. And then it was this curriculum that I had developed and I had been facilitating myself. And I started asking myself the question, can I train other people to do this? So mm. essentially, I go into treatment programs now and they adopt my method as part of what they do, not all of what they do. Uh, and I train clinicians on how to um, use this model, which is essentially... How do I hold space for someone to reconnect with their true nature? That's the easiest way to say it. Love it. Love that very much. Okay. So um, talk about Agape too. How did that happen? Yeah. So uh, I'm a major fan. Yeah, I know you are. That's in, in, and I am as well. So mm -hmm. I started an independent new thought center in 2012 in San Francisco. I, I through my own visioning process through my own discernment, in other words, through getting quiet enough to listen to the inner knowing, I started my own. I, le I left the unity movement in a way, not that I ever left because I love unity, but started my own independent new thought center, which was going well and growing and uh, started having these messages to connect with agape. I hadn't ever attended Agape. Of course, I knew who Michael Beckwith was, but hadn't ever had the opportunity to meet him. How did you know who he was? Well, just, you know, being in, being in the world and being a new thought, you know, it was like mm -hmm. Marianne Williamson and Michael Beckwith and some of these people that mm -hmm. had been so inspirational to me. Um, right. I remember when I, I gave my very first talk at a new thought center, mm -hmm. I talked about these four levels of consciousness that I developed. I developed, I thought I did. And someone <laughs> came up and have you ever heard Michael Beckwith talk about that? It's almost identical. So there was this, <laughs> there was this alignment. And um, in 2016, we, we visioned, this is my community in San Francisco. Right. And it, I kept getting these visions of connecting with Michael Beckwith. And he eventually called us, reached mm -hmm. out to us and asked if we wanted to be the first Agape satellite. And I hadn't, this is what the power of visioning. I didn't even reach out to him. He reached out to us because we both caught it in, in, um, in the field of consciousness. And so then I went through a pathway of becoming ordained with agape. And then 
uh, we moved our center to Oakland. It became Agape Bay Area. And mm -hmm. then as soon as pretty much once I got that up and running uh, one more time, I had the, a, a deep knowing to focus my life on conscious recovery. So I resigned from that position. It's, it is still a community that exists in Oakland and wow. so incredibly grateful. You know, obviously I'm grateful for my friendship now and collaboration mm -hmm. with Michael Beckwith. And he's such an inspirational teacher. Okay. So I want to tell you something. Okay. Uh, I think it's a, a, just important that I do um, because because you have this experience. This is I want you to know how I even ever heard about Michael Beckwith or caught wind of him. So I was in rehab. Now I'm 14, a little over 14 and a half years sober. And on Monday nights, they would have these groups that were educational groups to teach you about addiction and then the way mm. the brain functions and the frontal cortex. And I'd just be so fucking bored out of my mind. I'd sit there and think, oh, my God, when is this going to end? They'd show us a video of a guy in a classroom setting, like showing the brain functionality and all that. And, and I was like, this is too much. Like, I, I don't want I, this is boring. Then every once in a while, he would play this movie, a DVD, back when DVDs were still DVDs, right, <laughs> of um, The Secret. And I would watch The Secret, and I was like, whoa, like this is actually very interesting. And and it talked about manifestation and building your own energies and your own universe. And if you have negative thoughts, obviously, you know, law of attraction and all that, you have negative thoughts, you're going to have a negative outcome. And if you have positive thoughts, and Michael Beckwith, I remember seeing the guy with the dreads, and I thought, He's interesting. Like he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And sure enough, like down the line, because I was I was in obviously I was in 12 step meetings because yeah. that's what most treatment centers send you to. But I also wanted to expand my mind and do more readings outside of that. So with like within the first year of my recovery, I started checking out the Eckhart Tolle's and the Marianne mm -hmm. Williamson yes, qu yes. quotes and books. And I became an immediate fan of her. And I've seen her live too. And she's amazing. But I came across a book by Michael Beckwith called Life Visioning. And then um, I happened to be at a Prince concert because if you don't know, now you know that I'm the biggest Prince fan on earth, right? Okay. Uh, but I was at a Prince concert and I was with a, a lady I didn't even know, right? And she was sitting, standing next to me. She said, I'm a super fan. I said, I'm a super fan too. We love Prince. And as we were dancing and singing at this concert, Prince brought people up on stage every night. It was at the forum. So every night he would bring up different celebrities or different friends of his that were well-known, right? And Michael Beckwith got up there. And I'm awesome. like, hey, isn't that that guy from The Secret? And she goes, actually, <laughs> he's actually, he's like, he. I go to Agape and he he's part of the ministry there. And I, he actually is the founder of it, right? And so then I got that book to Life Visioning and I started reading it and I learned the history of him. And then I started going to Agape regularly and there was a lot of encounters. And finally I got to meet him too. And I was like, this is a like, and when you hear that man doing what he does and he's in action, I, I just like, I'm enthralled. I'm just, I love to listen to him because he's so non-denominational. It's all about, you know, finding your, your higher self and, and definitely, you know, God is, is within, you know? And so that, that's my, my Michael Beckwith story. Like, I think that, I didn't think any of that happened by accident that I happened to be in rehab in a point in my life where I was really hurting and wanting to get sober and changing and transforming. But I believe that it was the message that was transcribed through the secret about building my own energy that I got to get to be where I am today to That's build right. my own energy and, and, and overcome my traumas. And I, and I want to back up real quick. Like I did a psychodrama when I was in that particular center 
and got to relive the day of a car accident where I accidentally hit somebody who who lost their life shortly after. And that was my major trauma. I, mean, I had a lot of other traumas too, definitely. But that was one of the things that I believe like the reason I got into such deep drug addiction and alcoholism was because I was always just trying to numb out and not have to think about the pain, the anguish, the sorrow, the guilt that I encountered with that. So this is so cool to hear like your experience on how you joined Agape. And the fact, I didn't even know that Agape had a division that was up in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's fairly new, about five five or six years ago. Yeah, okay. so what a blessing. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting how consciousness works because we all, we find our people. And, and that I think is an interesting segue maybe into a conversation about, for me, the deepening of the principle that we change our thinking and change our life. And when I watched The Secret, I, 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 I will, I loved it, first of all. And I realized that there was, you know, when I, when I heard Michael speak, Mm -hmm. he was speaking at it at a much deeper level. He wasn't saying use positive thinking and attract positive situations. He was saying that and, and I know now knowing him, I know that his background, he has an interesting background in psychology and spirituality. So Mm -hmm. he is bringing in the piece of, we, we heal the underlying root causes, the traumas, right? So it's really frequency, it's energy. And so the foundation of conscious recovery is this, this idea that we're whole and perfect, but we have started believing that we're not. And it's not really a belief, it's a frequency, right? So I'm holding this energy that I'm not worthy and mm-hmm. I'm vibrating with that energy. And I walk into a room because I don't think it's so much the law of attraction as it's the law of radiance, right? I'm, mm. I'm radiating this frequency and then I will choose the person mm. unconsciously, but I'll choose the person to confirm the core false belief. Right. That's not bad news. That's great news. Right? <laughs> I remember hearing a spiritual teacher saying, do you find yourself having the same dysfunctional relationship over and over and over again? That's the great news. You created that. And if you created that, you can uncreate that and create something different. Mm. And I was like, wow. Yes. And yes. so, you know, my new book, Conscious Creation, which Michael Beckwith wrote the, the forward to, I mm-hmm. explore the difference between changing our thinking and then how do we start changing the frequency and then you know the difference between visualization and visioning and of course honoring michael for his work with that and how do we actually create a life deeply on purpose and Mm -hmm. one that is sustainable not that one because you know when i shared when i was in my 30s i was using these law of attraction principles and unity principles to manifest Mm -hmm. but i hadn't done the deeper work so i manifested everything i thought i would make me happy. True. And I thought, oh, is this all there is? Look, I have the house, I have the partner, I have the car. Why do I still feel empty? So mm. conscious creation is my framework of how we can shift from that into something much deeper, which involves finding and discovering an inner blueprint and a deeper purpose for our life. Awesome. I love it. I love it. I'm going to have to read this. I, you gave me a copy of this last book, so I w- I'm going to definitely check it out. I have like a stack of books that I've been reading, but I've been intending to read that one for sure. So uh, by naming it Conscious Recovery and Conscious Creation, yeah. um, obviously the word conscious means to be, you know, to be conscious yeah. of certain things, of everything, right? Yeah. So would it be fair to say that the majority of humanity is asleep and not really truly conscious because they there's so much drama that goes on in the world amongst people amongst themselves internally 
Um, is is that? I mean, I, I believe that's one of the things that holds humanity back. Is is uh, you know third dimensional living, basically thinking that exactly what you explained earlier, thinking that the car and the the partner and the house and all those things are going to make us feel whole, but it's never enough. It's never right. enough. And, right. and so uh, actually having an awakening, you know, you get to live in a different dimension and be able to truly be comfortable in your skin and happy with what you have because your spirit is enlivened. That's right. And, you know, you mentioned some of my favorite teachers um, and now, you know, with, so much awe and gratitude i've been able to partner with some of the people you named right um and eckhart tolle is such a huge um, inspiration to me and you know i'm not going to say that i'm not going to answer the question is the world is are most people asleep i'll say it this way i was asleep for most of my (laughs) life and what that sleep looked like was believing in the lie and believing what was reality was illusion and what was illusion is reality so let me lean into that let's talk about it through the lens so um reality is i'm a whole and perfect spiritual being and that we're all whole and perfect underneath all of our behavior and anything that ever happened to us Mm -hmm. that's that's reality or ultimate reality but the illusion that i thought was reality was fear scarcity um division all the isms everything that we imagine that you know has created all the conflict in the world yes many of us believe that's reality and it is on one level. It's physical reality. Sure. There's something much more happening here. And sure. when I woke up and realized what I had been believing was the truth was actually the illusion, everything in my life changed. Everything. Hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because that's deep. It's yeah. true. I understand what you're talking about, but I... I I just, I think it's awesome to be able to have this conversation with somebody that's very like-minded because it's deep. It's really deep. Yeah. And so I'll say it this way in my book, Conscious Creation, I've given it five steps. Mm-hmm. And I, I, by the way, promised myself, I'd never be that person that created a four or a five or six step process, but here I am. It's what came through. Mm-hmm. But this, five, this five steps to conscious creation, I've given it an acronym movie and I'll give you the five because I think it's important in this conversation. Many people start the creation process with visualization. What do I want to create and how do I create goals around manifesting that? Mm-hmm. And so this movie acronym, um, because of my life experience, M is making peace with the past. Mm-hmm. O is overcoming core false beliefs. So starting with those two, clearing that away, doing this deeper work of looking at through the lens of compassion, how I developed this belief in my own brokenness and how every relationship I chose was confirming that, Mm -hmm. making peace with that and overcoming these core false beliefs allows us to be in a place where we start to explore the difference between visualization and visioning. Visualization Mm -hmm. is what do I want? I put it on a vision board and I use affirmations and positive thinking to manifest it. Visioning, and again, we'll honor Michael Beckwith because he is one of the just amazing um, voices in this process. It's Mm -hmm. completely different than that. It's getting quiet and listening to the inner wisdom Mm. and letting that direct our life rather than what do I think I want? So, for example, when I visioned um, our community in uh, the Bay Area, 
Michael Beck coming through, but that wasn't a thought of mine. Mm-hmm. And so it was much greater than anything I could have created with my mind. So that's the V and then it's intention setting and embodying the vision. So those are the five steps. Wow. I love it. I love it. So what, how many books have you written? Three, three books and then multiple workbooks I've co-authored that, that, help someone take the principles from the books and bring it into their life in a practical way. Okay. And what does your day-to-day life consist of? What do you do? Obviously you have conscious recovery, right? Is there a center? Is it online right now in this COVID climate? What, what are you doing? So I'm doing multiple things. I'm part of a platform called wholehearted.org along with Brene Brown, Marianne Williamson, Gabor Mate, where I've created online experiences, both for the individual and for anyone who is a, therapist, counselor, or coach that wants to use the model. Mm-hmm. That's, I, you know, I was three years in the studio. We recorded all during COVID. So it was an opportunity, right? Because we were in the studio um, mm-hmm. recording. Uh, that's one thing I've done. Mm-hmm. I do this a lot. I do podcast interviews because this is my favorite. I could do this. Well, let me let me be careful what I ask for. I could do this at least twice a day. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Uh, <laughs> then the primary thing or one primary thing I do is I go into treatment programs, mm-hmm. uh, partner with treatment programs, and sure. I take the model in and I train clinicians. Mm-hmm. So one program that I'm so honored to be a part of is Discovery Behavioral Health. Mm-hmm. All of their substance use programs use conscious recovery. So I'll be going to the East Coast soon to do the annual training at some of their programs to Texas. Um, Cliffside Malibu, for example. So that's a lot of what I do is those trainings. We're actually launching a fully online training for treatment programs that's coming out in the next week or so. So I'm busy. Oh, love it. Um, you brought up Gabor Mate. You know, he he is um, he has a whole different spin on on addiction and outlook, and and uh, more and more people are actually starting to recognize him. I mean, he's been around for a long time, but definitely uh, he's a very interesting individual who's highly knowledgeable. I've got a couple of books I just got from him recently too. I started reading and um, I'm enjoying it. I I like his perspective. Yeah, definitely check out wholehearted.org. AJ, the owner, but just recently put out a lot of content. And actually I am deeply humbled to say that we're going to be, he's going to be putting out a couple of like eight or 10 minute sort of mini documentaries featuring me and Gabor talking about trauma and everything that that Gabor has been saying, which is what you said so beautifully. It's not, it's not about the addiction. It's about the pain and where did this come from? And what I love about the way our work has so much congruency is then I can also come in and say, yeah, and how do we start to heal that? Just like he does, right? He's, Mm -hmm. I think in the same, very similar. And and what I love about it is, you know, from a background standpoint, we're coming from different places. He's a medical doctor. He comes from a very different place. Sure. I I come in as the spiritual guy, right? And we're coming to these very, very similar conclusions. Mm -hmm, And that's that's because we're entering a new era. And there are a lot of us who are voices to a different approach than, you know, you're broken, you're damaged. Um, You know, you have a lifelong chronic disease that can never be cured. Mm-hmm. That might be true, but there might also be a greater reality than just that. Hmm. Awesome. So there's one, we'll close it out in a sec, but there's something that I wanted to talk about. I noticed that you talked about it today as far as the type of partners that we pick. Um, and I myself in personal experience uh, noticed that, <laughs> and I've, I've 
done some deep work on this is that pretty much like from the time I was five years sober to the time I was 10 years sober, I would get into these relationships with a lot of different uh, people who were, <clears throat> I didn't, you know, I, there was one in particular where I was working in a treatment center and I, we would have these interactions with each other to the point where one day I went to the lead clinician there and I asked her, can I please talk to you? I know you're, you're a therapist here. Everybody comes to you. Like I need, I need to ask you some questions. And I sat down with her in her office. She said, come on, sure. Come on in. Started talking to her and I described my relationship with the individual that I was with. And she said, well, it sounds like she has borderline personality disorder. And I said, what does that mean? I had no idea what that meant. And then she said, does she, does she, does, do you sometimes feel like you're going crazy? I'm like, yes, I totally do. And, and it, come to find that later on when I actually was dating that individual, she told me herself that she had been diagnosed with that. So, but it wasn't even her, like, and she's a lovely soul. Believe me, I'm still friends with her to this day. But uh, I continually kept getting into different relationships with different people that were, uh, the signs were there, if you want to label it, if you want to say that, that it was that certain borderline personality disorder, or even narcissism for that matter. But I, I kept on ending up with these people. And then one day I was with my friend Frankie Ollinger, Frankie Dahl. She she does a lot of uh, a lot of spiritual work too in this in this uh, sector, but she was telling me because I told her, "Why do I attract these people? I'm like a magnet to borderlines." And she said, "Pej, like you know, you have to take a look at yourself and see like what it is within you that actually it's." And and I love the way you so beautifully said it today that those experiences needed to happen, right. and it wasn't that that they were bad experiences, but it's for me to be able to learn and grow and see what I want, because I knew every time I would get in these relationships, as much as I thought I was evolved in my recovery process, there was things to really look at and see, why do I, why do I paint the red flags green? Why am I allowing, I'll stay with someone and try to, to fix them or think that I could be of service to them or help them when truly I knew from the very get, or there was already pl plenty of indicators that showed me like, probably not a good person for you to want to stay in a long-term relationship with. And here I am uh, during the beginning of the relationship thinking, I wonder what our kids will look like. I wonder, like, you know, <laughs> right. I wonder <laughs> things like that. So I, I, I very much, uh, and then one more thing I wanted to say, I went to uh, Marianne Williamson a few years ago before the pandemic was doing these uh, in, in LA, she was doing these town hall meetings, if you will. Right. And Monday night, yeah. Monday, exactly. You could yeah. go down there and she would give her talk, a, a nice 40 to 50 minute talk, which she's just a powerhouse when she talks. Like so, so awesome to watch her in action. Right. And then afterwards, she'd come down onto the floor and op like she had an open mic and she would come and ask people questions and people would ask questions. And I remember there was a, a woman that was standing there and she said, um, well, my my boyfriend's a narcissist and blah, 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 blah. And she started to try to talk more and Marion cut her off right there and said, Hold on, before we get into all this, just so we know, a lot of people can call people a narcissist without knowing that they, if they truly are or not. People can say, I'm a narcissist. People can say, you're a narcissist. But, you know, if if he's truly a diagnosed narcissist, like you, you want to work, basically words have a lot of power. You want to watch what you're saying when you're saying these things about somebody, right? And so it was, for me, it was like a turning point where I realized like, I think we all have narcissistic traits, uh, you know, as human humans, especially with the internet and things that that are out there. Definitely, a lot of people like to be recognized and seen and talk about themselves and things like that. But 
for me, it was a turning point where I thought to myself, I don't, I need to stop fixating and focusing on the partners that I, that I'm with and wondering if they have borderline or if they're narcissists and all these right. different things right, right, right. and really take a look at myself and see like, what about me is it that continues to want to stay with those types? You know, when I know that it's not serving my spirit well, and I, I need to really think about what, what I really do want within a woman and do I possess those qualities if, if they're good qualities. That's right. And you said there's so many layers to this. We could do an entire show on it. But I will say this, um, you know, because we're talking about Marianne Williamson. So I'll talk about my experience with I was this is I'll tell you how long ago it was. I was on the treadmill with a Walkman and mm -hmm. I was listening to a cassette of Marianne Williamson. And she said, what people always say, why do I keep attracting unavailable people? And a more powerful question is, why am I attracted to them? Mm -hmm. And so I've taken that and looked at that and actually said, what is it I'm wanting them to be available for? Mm -hmm. So we have this conversation about I keep keep attracting these people and then we label them, like you said. And now it's really popular in our culture to say how to remove toxicity from your life, get rid of toxic relationships. Mm -hmm. I want to be really clear how I'm saying this, because I've had a couple of people say to me, it sounds like you're victim blaming. I'm actually wanting to empower each of us to recognize that it's not about the other person mm -hmm. and it's not why do I keep attracting them or even for me now and why do I why am I attracted to them it's what is wanting to heal mm. I'm choosing these people because it's congruent with the vibration of what I believe I deserve and so someone might hear that and say oh well you're blaming like like let's imagine someone's in a relationship where it's physically abusive we're not saying it's the person's fault what I am saying though is I've chosen that on some level, and now I have the power to step away from that and heal what's underneath it because it's not about leaving the person. Obviously, that's the first step if you're in sure. obviously abusive relationship, but the mm -hmm. healing that's being asked of us is what are the traumatic experiences that helped me develop this core frequency or core belief in my own unworthiness and that's why I continue to choose these people. That's yeah. actually empowering, not disempowering. Mm -hmm. And so if I find myself in these relationships, just like, you know, an addiction, step one might be to not be in a relationship for a while to do some of this healing. But this is the deeper work. It's going back to looking at when these originated and doing mm -hmm. that work with our inner child and healing those. Because I know that healing is possible, that it's not, the symptom is the relationship. So it's not about if we continue to treat symptoms, we just keep trying to find a better partner, but that doesn't really heal what's underneath it. So, you know, we, maybe we have a part two at some point, but that's, maybe, maybe we do. I think we will. I actually really enjoyed uh, having you on today. You're such a powerful force, such a good human being. I, I really, really love having these types of conversations. I think this can help a lot of people. Um, I hope to collaborate with you in some capacity at some point. I'm going to stay in touch with you more regularly. And um, and then, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll have a part two. I would love to have you back on. I would love that. I always say yes to a part two. <laughs> awesome. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you to all that tuned in today. Thank you, TJ, for, for being on the corner, Peggy's Recovery Corner. And I will be in touch. Love Great. you all. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye.